Hi, my name is Steve, and the Old Testament reading is found in Numbers, chapter 27, verses 16 through 18. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Kelsey, and the New Testament reading is found in Romans 12, verses 12 through 18. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Sarah. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark six thirty-three through 36. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The Gospel of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you this day that we can look in your word, that we can feed upon your spirit, and we can rejoice in the knowledge that we are sheep with a shepherd. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I'm like a bad penny. I just keep showing up, you know. Oh, thank you, Steve. At least one, one out of 500, you know, it's not bad odds there. Well, today, I'm actually, I have the privilege of paralleling Pastor Glenn's sermon uh, about 100 miles up north, as he's in Fort Collins this morning, as, as Pastor Evan said, and we're both tackling the same passage. And so, the Gospel of Mark, as we've been looking at it, is fascinating in the way that it's written. But do you know that there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels? The same two miracles in all four Gospels. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 finds its way in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's Gospel, which is kind of unique because John's Gospel, written about 25, 30 years after the synoptics or Matthew, Mark, and Luke is, is quite different in its focus and in the kinds of things that it brings out. And so there must be something rather significant about this. And so we're going to compare and, and look about between two banquets. But before we do that, 
I want to quickly review. Mark is the first gospel we believe to be written. Mark is the shortest gospel. Do you realize we've divided it into 16 chapters? Do you realize the first eight chapters comprise the first, the whole three years of Jesus's ministry, and the last eight chapters talk about the last two weeks of his life? So it's just an interesting way that Mark sets it up. Mark has this sense of immediacy. Glenn has mentioned before that the, there's a conjunction. The Greek is kaiethos, and immediately. And it's used 42 times in this short gospel of Mark. And Mark seems to write it, and some scholars have suggested, in fact, it is like a screenplay, like a drama. There's scenes that seem to unfold and close and open. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Markin sandwich, where Mark seems to start an event and then interrupt it with another narrative and then complete the first event, and then the interruption becomes the key to it all. When today, we'll see some similar kind of literary devices, but I need to ask you a question first. Have you ever been invited to a fancy dinner and it didn't go well? I remember a number of years ago, and and most of you know that I spent a, a number of years traveling very frequently to Africa. I've been involved for 15 years with a ministry called AFMEN, African Ministries Network, and we train African pastors. And I was working in a refugee camp project that I've referenced before in sermons, and it was one of the earlier years, I think it might have been the second or third time I'd been in this refugee camp. Now, we had about 1,500 refugee pastors we were training. We would bring in all their materials, of course, and we would also bring money to pay for food for these guys. They're refugees, of course, and, and additional food beyond the UN rations. And so they loved the week because they, they got more food, they got teaching, they got collective ministry and worship and all those things. Well, one, on the first, first or second day, we were breaking for our lunch break, and they were cooking the beans and the rice and ugali. It's called other names in Africa. It's like a cornmeal mush that's very, very thick and very starchy. It's kind of like the anti-Atkins diet, you know. And I was preparing to, to get in line with these guys and just enjoy the meal with all of them. Well, the, the committee, the refugee pastor's committee, pulled myself and a, and a friend of mine who was traveling with me, another pastor, pulled us aside and said, no, 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 we have something special for you. We're going to go, and there was this hut that was served as like the offices. We're going to go and have a special meal there. So I, I felt a little bad because there's hundreds and hundreds of, of the refugee pastors standing in line with their little plates to get the beans and the rice and the ugali and a little bit of gravy. And, and I would have been fine with that. But I was being whisked off into the cavernous little mud hut to get a very special meal. And so we sit down, and they actually had plates and some very old uh, kind of bent tin silverware and you know and they're setting all the table placing out and they brought some rice in and they brought some beans in and then they brought this large bucket of roasted goat entrails and they looked just like what they were (laughs) I think the intestines were on top I could identify from high school anatomy class, oh, there's a liver, there's a heart, that must be a brain, if I only had a brain. And suddenly, my heart and my stomach sunk. Now, some of you, like my friend who was traveling with me, might have grown on a farm. 
I grew up 11 miles southeast of downtown Los Angeles. We didn't eat stuff like that. We knew that meat came from packages at the grocery store. And so I, I didn't know what to do. And my friend who was with me, who grew up in Indiana in a farm, he takes a fork and just dives into one of the anatomy parts and pulls it out and puts it on his plate and says, thank you. And I was forced with lying and saying, I really wasn't lying. It became true. I said, oh, my stomach's bothering me a little. And so I think I'll stick with just the rice. It wasn't a lie. It, in fact, was becoming true uh, during the meal. And all I could think of was the rice and the beans and the corn mush with the gravy sounded really good that the masses were eating out there. I wished I wasn't at this special feast. Well, we have in this passage in Mark a story that you know. In fact, how many of you, probably those of you 40 or 45 years old and older, first heard about the feeding of the 5,000 on a flannel graph? How many of you have no idea what a flannel graph is? Oh my, oh my, my, my. Pastor Evan, next time I preach, I'm going to bring it out, okay? We're going to set it up on the stage and... Do I get an amen? <laughs> you haven't lived till you've used the flannel graph. It's such a familiar passage, isn't it? We have this elaborate introduction, which we read a, a, a portion of it a moment ago in our New Testament, our gospel reading. We have... It's... it's uh, one of those things that's so curious because not just the, um, the miracle that happens, but just the drama involved. It's looked at, looked back on two different times in the New Testament. They reference it. It's mentioned in all four Gospels. It has an interesting sequel story in Mark chapter 8, a second version of it, the feeding of the 4,000. And what's really interesting is it's positioned just following John the Baptist's death and Herod's feast. And as I said before, Mark is not accidental in the way that he places these stories. So let's read Mark chapter 6, if you have your Bible or a, a version of it, 30 verse 32, and to kind of set up, this is the verses just before our gospel reading. The apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. You know, just an interesting point that following Jesus doesn't mean you learn a series of rules and behavioral norms. We talk a lot here at New Life Downtown about fellowship at the table, at the Lord's table, but at our own tables during our dinner groups during the week. Even Jesus says to his disciples, we have not even had leisure time so much as to gather around a table together and eat. And I just think that's a, a marvelous observation. Verse 32, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. But the problem was, as we heard in our gospel reading, that many people saw them coming and going and recognized them. And as they went across this little lake, the masses of people were following them on the perimeter to be there when they arrived because they wanted to hear from this new teacher, Jesus. They wanted to see what he might do. They wanted to hear what truths he might say. And so they, they listen to Jesus. He begins to teach. And it grows late. 
and the disciples start to warn Jesus. They say, Master, it's getting a little late. You know, all the restaurants are closing. It's quite a ways. There's a lot of people here. I think we may want to, you know, close up the, the service. You know, you may want to... By the way, do you know what... Uh, when a preacher says, in conclusion, do you know what that means? Absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> and so you can imagine the angst that the disciples are having, and they come to Jesus with a plan. If you, if you dismiss the service now, there's enough time, potentially, for them to get back into town and get something to eat. And then it's not our responsibility is what the unsaid thing is. And then Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. Now, can you imagine the disciples standing there? And who, I don't know who the spokesman was, possibly Peter, probably Peter. He tended to be the one to, to speak first and think later. I can just see him coming back and they're going, way to go, Peter. Yeah, great. You know, where are we, gonna, where are we going to get food to, to feed that many people? And so he goes on and he, they're a bit incredulous and they explain the facts. They say, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to him to eat? And he said, how many loaves do you have? And go see. And we know from another, one of the other gospel accounts that they found a kid who had the foreknowledge and the, the preparedness, he was probably a Boy Scout, to come prepared and he had five loaves and two fish. And so they absconded that from the kid and come and say, this is what we got. And then Jesus says, it says that Jesus told them to, commanded them to have everybody sit in groups on the grass. They sat by hundreds and fifties and he took the loaves and the fish and he looked up to heaven and he lifted them, he gave thanks and he broke the bread. Now, this is prefiguring, of course, the Eucharist. He breaks the bread and then he sets it down to the disciples and he says, you go feed them. And I can only imagine the first row just take a little. You know, just a, I said a little. <laughs> Put that back. Okay, look. You can take a little more. Oh, take two. You know, and pretty soon, here, take another hunk. You know, and I don't know what it looked like. I don't know what it was like. But the amazing conclusion of the story is in verse 42 and 43 where it says, and they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and fish, meaning each of the 12 disciples had a basket and each of them filled it up and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Now that was a typical Hebrew way of numbering. They would have numbered by families is what it's saying. And so scholars believe easily 15, 20,000 people when you had a man, a wife, two or three kids, certainly there would have been some single people, but in that culture there would have most likely been fifteen to 20,000 or more people. So he blesses the meager resources, the miracle occurs, we see the obvious lessons. Jesus cares for the crowd. He cares for people's physical needs. We see that Jesus doesn't just care for their soul and the teaching, he cares for their, for their physical needs and wants and desires. 
Some have suggested over the years, some scholars, that this was not actually a miracle. What they said really happened was people did have food, but they were hoarding it and kind of hiding it and seeing the little boy's generosity. Generosity overwhelmed everybody and they all started sharing and everybody was filled. But Mark doesn't allow for that understanding when you read the text. He just doesn't. This was a miracle. And we know it, we've heard it, it's it's a remarkable miracle. But below the surface, and as true as those observations are, to the first century Jew that would be hearing this story, there was another very clear message. And there were actually political overtures in this narrative. In 6 verse 34, it says, When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. In our Old Testament reading, we read from the the book of uh, Numbers about God's desire for them to choose someone upright and godly because he did not want his sheep to be without a shepherd. There are a number of references to the Old Testament in Isaiah, uh, in Psalms, but we're going to read out of Ezekiel chapter 34, starting with verse 2 to verse 6. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, or Yahweh, ah, the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And what is the very thing that Jesus says about himself? I came to save and to seek those who were lost. Jesus is the true shepherd, the true good shepherd of the sheep. But I want to draw your attention for just a moment to John, the the Apostle John's account of this miracle. In John chapter 6, verse 15, this is is right at the point of the story where it says they were all satisfied and they collected all 12 baskets. John chapter 6, verse 15 says this, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. It's a pretty remarkable injection of politics into this, this wonderful Bible story. A good friend of mine who's actually a good friend of New Life Downtown, Glenn Powell with Biblica, formerly International Bible Society, he's spoken at our Sunday school class and uh, actually has a book coming out in, in a couple of months, has done so much around the country with reorienting the way we read the scriptures. You understand that the numbers that are on the verses and chapters were added hundreds and even thousands of years after those events happened. And as a result, sometimes we look at a a story based on where it's at in a chapter, based on the numbers, and we, we think it's standing alone and we miss the flow of the story and the whole narrative. 
Well, Mark did not write chapter 6. Mark wrote his gospel. And in this gospel, in the flow, you have this remarkable story of Herod's feast followed by the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's not accidental. You can't just ignore that. And I'd like to not only ignore it, I'd like to take a moment and focus on it. Because what I think Mark is inviting us to do in hearing this story, he's inviting us to compare and contrast two banquets. A banquet held by a political leader, Herod, and a banquet held by the shepherd of the sheep of Israel, Jesus, on a hillside. And I want us to look at some of the comparison and some of the contrast, and I want to drive home a point. And I'll tell you the takeaway now. The takeaway is, I think, especially in this time in our country and all the vitriol language and angst in the political realm with all of the, the uh, what need more I say, with the presidential election cycle and all that's going on, I fear that we, the people of God, are eating at Herod's table more than we are eating at the Lord's table. And I want to just look at some of the differences. You're familiar a little bit with Herod's feast. It says in uh, Mark 6, just going back a little bit, verse 21, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military leaders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, when you're going to have a birthday party, generally your friends throw it for you. But Herod throws it for himself and invites all the dignitaries and all the most important people, okay? And then we, we understand that Herodias, his daughter, his, his wife's daughter comes in, who could have been a, a stepdaughter uh, to him, came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guest, and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And, and it, it is, in fact, creepy. That's your sense, and it really is. There was a lewdness to it. And Herod is, is infatuated a bit by her, and he says, he's probably drunk, and he says, whatever you want, give it. And so she goes back, and she talks with her mother, and they have this whole little dialogue because John the Baptist had already called them out on their sin sometime before, and she says, ask him to give you John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so he goes, or she goes, and she asks the king that, and the king doesn't want to do it, but he doesn't want to look bad in front of his friends and in front of those who respect him and look up to him. So he orders it done. Gruesomely, sadly, John is killed, and he delivers that, in fact, to her at the feast. And now that's contrasted with Jesus out on a hillside, concerned that his people are like sheep without a shepherd, ministering to them and feeding them. And so I'd like to look at a few of the contrasts of Herod's feast with Jesus' feast. And the first is, who's invited? In verse 21, it says, the noblemen, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. In verse 33, it says, many saw them coming and going and recognized them, and they all ran there on foot from all the towns and got ahead of them. And it calls them simply a great crowd. You know, it says in, elsewhere in the New Testament, whosoever will may come. The one thing that distinguishes Herod's feast from Jesus' banquet is that anyone can come. You don't have to be part of the club. One of the things that 
distinguishes Herod's banquet is only people in his political party are welcome. Only those who agree with him are welcome. You know the one thing I love about the Lord's table is that we all come at the same level. When you come and receive, when we have the privilege of serving you, we don't ask for a litmus test. We don't ask for your opinion on things. We don't ask for your affiliations. We just say, the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Herod's feast separates people. Jesus' banquet embraces and receives people. Remember the New Testament reading in Romans where he talks about loving your enemies and blessing those and as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, with kindness, with, with gentleness, with respect, with integrity. I think those things matter and I think they matter in the public square and I know you'd think so too that we as believers be the ones to act that way, to be truly, you know, there's not a political party that's actually inclusive. Did you know that the one side is just as exclusive as the other side? They don't actually want you unless you agree with them. You know, for, for all the talk about tolerance and inclusivity, there's only one affiliation I know of, and that's all those who call Jesus Lord. We come to him, and we just simply say, feed me, and he does. And so, all are invited. Well, the second question or contrast, what's the host like? Well, we know about Herod. He's manipulative. He's narcissistic. He's, he's egotistical. He's mean. He's vicious. Every four years, I'm in my late 50s. I have, this is my 10th presidential election, I will, I don't know if I, the word is get or have to vote in, uh, but nonetheless, this is my 10th one I, I will be voting in since college when I first registered. And every four years, I always hear people saying, this is the most disgusting I've ever heard it. Those are the most negative commercials I've ever seen. Every four years. It's like, did you forget the last four years? You know, when they had the and the black and white picture of, of the candidate, whichever side he's on. It looks like he's about ready to sneeze or something. And it says, he did all these things. And then all of a sudden it turns to this light classical music and there's a field of lilies and the new guy comes up and says, but he will, you know, solve all your problems and lead you to the happy land. And we forget that, and I'm not, I'm not talking about political I'm not talking about politicians here. I'm not talking about the men and the women running for office. I'm talking about a system that will not satisfy the deepest needs of your life. Okay? What I'm saying is Herod, the prince of the power of the air, if you will, is manipulative and narcissistic and vicious and cruel. Jesus, on the other hand, in verse 34, we just read it. It says he had compassion on them. He was like a shepherd to them. Herod's feast will ultimately make other people just like Herod. 
Now, am I saying that Christians should not be involved in the political process? Absolutely not. I think it's important that followers of Christ speak up and that we become a transformative influence in our culture. And God will call some to do that through the political arena. And I say amen, and God bless them, and we need to pray for them. What I'm saying, though, is that at the deeper issues of the heart, you cannot expect that system to meet those needs in your life because it will only continue to rile people up and get people upset and not make you the best version of you. Can a person be a follower of Jesus, loving and kind and gracious to others and still be involved in the political system as God leads him or her? I believe they can. But I believe it's a a battle and I think we need to pray for them so that they do it with a godliness and an integrity that shows the world there's something even greater than, than these political remedies. There's something even greater, and it's called the feast of the Lord. It's called the table of the Lord. It's called Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep. And then finally, what was the result of Herod's banquet versus Jesus' banquet? Herod's banquet, we know, it was a horrific act of violence. Jesus' banquet says they were all filled and satisfied. We have three rules uh, in our dinner groups that Pastor Evan has suggested. We just had our dinner group last Friday night. It's the three Ps. No provocation, no politics, no potty mouth. Am I right? Yeah. And what we find when we obey that little rule is that the people eat and are satisfied. I don't mean just the food, though it's pretty good, at least at ours. But what I mean is when people are sharing their hearts and their lives around Jesus and around each other, it doesn't, it doesn't spark controversy. It doesn't get me angry at you. It doesn't get me upset. I hear Christians talking as if the end of the world is coming because their guy's not in the lead. Jesus is on the throne. You know, I I just want to remind you of that. Um, Okay, the kingdom of God is not about a donkey or an elephant, but it's about a lamb who was slain. Amen? Chuck Colson used to always say, the president will never, or excuse me, the Messiah will never arrive on Air Force One. Dr. Tony Evans, uh, you know, the great preacher from Dallas, uh, I just heard a sermon of his just recently. It was absolutely wonderful. Uh, And what Dr. Evans said was, the problem with American Christians, as I see it, this is what he said just a short time ago, is that they seem at the moment to care more about being Americans than being Christians. Wow. Are we saying we don't care? No, we're not saying any of that. But, folks, I want to be satisfied from the Lord's feast. So the Lord's banquet. What are some of the things we learn about the Lord's banquet? This picture of a feast, of a banquet, is used throughout the Bible. We have the, 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 the table of the Passover in the Old Testament, and we have in the New Testament the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And all throughout the scriptures, we see this picture of a banquet. Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You know, the sense of being satisfied in the Lord, even when your enemies are around you. And here's a secret. The people from the other political party from you are not your enemy. He was talking about real enemies. And yet the Lord prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. We have the, the Old Testament where, and I think it's in Isaiah, he says, all who are thirsty come, all who are hungry come and eat. There's this wonderful sense of everybody gets to come to Jesus. If the presence of Jesus among us is not radically impacting our life, I want to suggest that we need to move closer to him because I think maybe we're eating from Herod's table more than we thought we were. I will say that in the last weeks, I have been grieved, I think genuinely even in my spirit as I, as I read even on Facebook and social media, how angry and upset my Christian brothers and sisters are about the political situation in America when there are people around the world, when there are my brothers and sisters, Christians in Syria that are truly being persecuted, Christians in North Korea that are truly being persecuted, Christians in China that are truly being persecuted, people that are going hungry in other parts of the world, people that are, that are enslaved, and, and, I, and you know, I think of human trafficking and so many other things going on in the world, and we somehow think that if our little world doesn't go the way we want it to go, that everything is lost. Is the Bible true or not? You know, we need to be people who go to the Lord's feast and not Herod's table because it will not satisfy. And I'm saying this in a personal confession. I grew up in a home where we love to argue politics around the table. I had a mother who grew up Democrat. My father grew up Republican. And us kids were all back and forth in the middle. And we had a lot of fun arguing. But you know what? That never brings the kingdom of God, does it? It just doesn't. Now, I'm not saying you can't have an intelligent, reasonable discussion with someone, but what I am saying is, my friends, let us feast at the table of the Lord. Let us come to the Lord and say, satisfy me, fill me, Lord, and let us not come to the table of Herod expecting to get anything but violence, manipulation, narcissism, and anger towards one another. So as we close today, I want to encourage us to be ready to actually come to the table of the Lord. I want us to be able to say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've let these other things bother me so much. Lord, forgive me for letting these things take away the joy that should be at your table, at your fellowship, at your presence. And Lord, can we recenter and refocus ourselves again so that we can experience you? What does America need right now? What we really need is a revival. What we really need is the Spirit of God pouring out upon men and women, young men and young women. What we really need is a country whose heart breaks for the things that breaks God's heart. And that is not going to come primarily from a ballot. It's going to come from us coming before the Lord with our hearts and praying for this nation and praying for the world and praying for ourselves and being then a light on a hill of people who've encountered the living God. Can I get an amen? Not too mad at me? Okay. 
Let's, let's bow our heads and pray as the worship team comes up. And then I'm going to begin to lead us in our confessional prayer. And then Pastor Evan will lead us to the table. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are men and women that try so hard to figure things out. We are men and women who try so hard to, Lord, to make it work in our own energy. And Lord, it just doesn't work. And what happens is we get mad. We get mad at our neighbor. We get mad at our coworker. We get mad at our parents or our child because they aren't voting the way we want them to vote or they don't support the candidate that we like. And Lord, we have to repent for that, for our attitudes, for our heart, for getting angry about stuff that can't change the world. Lord, you can change the world. Your spirit poured out upon men and women can change the world. So, Lord, as we, as we say we're guilty, fill us by your spirit. Reorder our lives. Recenter our hearts and our desire that we would desire you and not Herod's table.